0: So this morning, we're going to be talking about divorce and, um, and remarriage. Um, a, f- a few first comments before we dive in. Um, one, remember that the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to Christ's people to walk in holiness. It's an invitation to Christ's disciples to follow in the way of Jesus. Okay? It's a high call. A high call that would be impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit, but by God's good grace and mercy, anyone who sees themselves in Christ as they pace towards the kingdom will, will be further and further shaped into the image that is embodied in the sermon. So that's my first note before we get into it. My second note is this. If you have divorce in your past, and if you find yourself haunted by the specter of condemnation, when we read this passage, you need to know that That has no place for you if you are in Christ. There is no condemnation in Christ. And your sinful past is separated from you in Christ as far as the east is from the west. Okay? Okay. So let's get started. I I want to start exactly where we were last time we were in Matthew. So I want you to turn to Matthew 5. Turn to Matthew 5, and we're going to start, um, uh, let me see here, we're going to start in verse uh, 27. There's a bad uh, subheading marker. Um, This actually, these two paragraphs are joined together very seamlessly. So you can't read one. And not the other. Uh, So we're going to start in 27. We're going to read all the way to verse 32. All right. Hold up your Bible when you're there. Awesome. Cool. Uh, I'll I'll read with you. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, Makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let me reread that. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, does that last paragraph strike anyone else as bizarre? I read that, and it feels odd to me. There's some dissonance there, and I don't quite understand it. And I think, in part, it's because this paragraph is countercultural. This paragraph is, is, is evidence that we have departed far away from the biblical vision of marriage. Marriage. So we, when we read things like this, it's going to go, whoa, really? Um, so I'm going to draw near to the claims of this paragraph, and then we're going to talk uh, a little bit more about that dissonance. Um, I think this, uh, I, think, I think you could summarize it as two culture-shifting claims and one paradigm-shifting exception. Two claims, one exception. First claim, divorce forces your spouse into adultery. All right? Divorce forces your spouse into adultery. I think that's one of the things that Jesus may be saying. The second claim is that divorce forces her future spouse into adultery. Okay? That's another thing I think Jesus might be saying. And then this Glaring exception. Divorce seems to be permitted in the case of sexual infidelity. All right, so these two claims and this exception looming, right? And we need to figure out, one, are are we drawing the right conclusions here? And then two, why? 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 How? What's what's the logic behind this? Um, Because these statements feel out of place I didn't expect them at all when I was reading. Um, and they bother me a little bit. I'm going to tell you why they bother me in a second. Um, however, general rule of Bible reading when you find yourself reading through a passage, and I hope you do, let me just go ahead and state this. I know that we, we're afraid of legalism, I understand that. Um, and, and you shouldn't feel like you have a standing before God because you read the Bible. That would be absolutely ridiculous because if you're actually reading the Bible, the Bible tells you that you don't have a standing before God because you read the Bible, right? Um, however, uh, let me just go ahead and state this because I don't think we say it enough. You should be reading the Bible every day, okay? I, I think it's a good general principle. Now, there are days where you may not be able to because you got like nine kids running around and every, like your your hair is like like that and, you know, it's... But you should make it a practice to just read. And if you don't know how to start, uh, I know you guys are like, you know, apps and you know, uh, tablets. But you, if you have something like that, there's usually in like the application, there's going to be a Bible study guide. Also, ESV.org has a whole lot of them. And also, if you just Google Bible study. Reading plan, you'll probably find a decent one. But just dive in. Uh, Okay, so that's that's beside the point. But when you do it, when you go and actually just read carefully, there will be many moments where you just feel yourself going, ugh. Just like, ugh, what what is that? Now, I have found, and I think many other people have found, um, that when you're, when you're Confronted with that feeling, you should just draw near to that text. Just draw near and 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 go find godly biblical resources that sort of talk about it because what you're usually doing when you feel that dissonance is you're is you're about to stumble upon something profound. Right? Usually it's evidence that your heart has accepted a claim of the world that is radically distinct from the claims of the Bible, and and if you can if you can draw nearer to the Bible, that, that you, can, you can replace the world's claims. And all of a sudden, you find yourself uh, having an easier time following Jesus. All right, so, so much for that. Um, all right, we're going to have to deal with this in four sections. Um, I'm going to give the context of this passage and other passages that we're going to be looking at. And then I'm going to try and and distill all of these passages into uh, a logical series of statements, all right, that will help us understand what I think is behind this passage, and then we're going to talk about the implications and the application, just like usual. Okay, the context. Um, uh, I, want, uh, I want you guys to look up at the screen. You don't have to turn there, um, uh, but look at the screen up. Uh, there is, Christ references um, this statement, anyone who divorces, uh, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, this is not like many other times in the sermon where he's actually quoting scripture. He's, he's referencing a teaching that is derived from a passage badly, inappropriately derived from a passage. We're going to talk about what that means. But I'm going to show you the passage that, uh, that has... Has, has been the grounds that people claim that this is a legitimate uh, way to operate. All right, so this is Deuteronomy 24, verses one through four. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Okay. Whoa. Okay, whoa. Um... A, a, a few first thoughts. Um, first, this situation is a disaster, right? Now, we've spent some time talking about the law in this series. And um, one thing to remember is when you're looking at the law, a a major mistake that you can make is to believe that the law is all the time giving you like a a, a beacon of righteousness, like this is... This is the picture perfect vision of how people should behave at all times. Often, the law is saying, look, if we don't tell you explicitly not to do something abhorrently wicked, then you will do it. Therefore, we have to draw these major boundary lines. All right? Oh, did we just. Sorry. Catching up. Two seconds. All right, so, so one thing you should know immediately just from the context of this passage that is that this passage is not that. It's not this like picture of a perfect scenario. So you, have, you have not one, but two different men deciding either because I found that there's some indecency in my wife or because I just hate her to send her away. If you know anything about the ancient context, sending a woman away is sending her either to another man's home or to prostitution. It is a despicable series of events that is being touched on here. And I want to point something else out. If you look at this passage, notice what it does not say. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if, then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indec- indecency in her He should write her a certificate. That is not what it says. It does not say he should write her a certificate. Now, it's an important note because that's how it's read in Jesus' day. So, anyways, that's the first thing. The situation is a mess. Um, And for the reason that we see all sorts of signals in this passage that this is just a disaster of human interaction, this is just a disaster of sin cascading upon sin you know that this is one of those boundary line passages. This is not a beacon passage. And those do exist in the law, by the way. Love the Lord your God with all your mind and strength. and so, Like, there are many of those passages in the law that we still rally behind. and We say, this is a righteous beacon. This is telling us how we should live. This is not one of those. This is a boundary line passage. And just to make that further explicit, the the purpose of this law is to protect women when men are the worst. All right? When men are the worst. This is why this is here. Because you have, in this passage, referenced two bad men. Two bad men interacting with a woman as if she were an object. And this passage says, there is a There is a wrath-driven limit to to how long I'll let you be wicked before I just Sodom and Gomorrah you people, right? Okay, so just to put that context behind the passage. Now, what happens, though, as the law is passed down um, is, is that the teachers of Israel became more and more corrupt. And, and this law was then twisted and leveraged to give men permission to be absolutely wicked. All right, now let me give you an idea of what that, how that plays out. By the time that Jesus was, was, was teaching, there, there is a major school of thought uh, uh, and, and, and a major rabbi. And I, when I say major, I mean they're still reading his words today. And this major rabbi said... Look, we've read this law carefully, and this law gives us permission to give, like, write down a certificate of divorce and hand it to uh, to our to our wives, such that that's the end of our marriage forever on the grounds of she burnt my bread. I'm not kidding; it's it's written down. And and if if you if you think that's maybe like a minor school of thought, everybody who's read in the ancient world, has read a guy named Josephus. A lot of our writings about ancient Israel that aren't biblical are written by a guy named Josephus. He was a reporter and a historian for Rome, and he was also a Jew. And uh, in one of his books, he's just in passing says, uh, my wife displeased me, so I dismissed her, and then I moved towns, and I got married again. All right, that's that, that's the situation that Jesus is teaching toward, all right? So this is what Christ is referencing when he turns his attention to the heinous and abusive and icky teaching. And I say icky because this thing plays out in really messy ways. Like the reason that exists is because, guys, we're getting married to experience things Because they knew that they could just write a little certificate and be done with her. That's horrifying. And Christ is saying no. Jesus says no, you may not divorce your wife. If you do, unless it's related to sexual infidelity, you're forcing her into adultery. And and her adultery is your fault. Now, Brett and I had a conversation about this last night. That feels weird to say. Okay, and I'm going to explain how this plays out. Um, There is a world where you can make someone sin, and, and, and this is one of those, right? Okay. So I have two questions. First, how is anybody else's sin my fault? That's a good question. How is anybody else's sin my fault? And then two... Why does it matter if sexual infidelity is involved? Why, why the exception? What, like, what does that have to Is this arbitrarily chosen? It, it seems to be that there's... The, the culture would suggest that there's many reasonable reasons to leave your spouse. Why, why just this one being mentioned? Okay, so those are my two questions. And both answers are found later in the book. This teaching comes up again in Matthew 19. Matthew 19. We're going to read it. All right. Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? See what they're doing? They're referencing the cultural conversation right now. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Then He said to them, They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So, okay, Jesus here in this passage is almost word for word repeating his prior teaching. He says, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Almost exactly what he said in Matthew 5, but here we find what's behind the teaching. Okay. So, to explain himself, Jesus directs our attention to the dawn of creation. You want to read the context? Start on page one of the Bible. All right? Jesus says that marriage is woven into the fabric of our humanity. Let me read this passage to you, the passage that Jesus just quoted. It was easy to find because it's the first passage, uh, the the first page of the Bible. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth Uh, at the dawn of all humanity, is fundamentally related to men and women. And they are commissioned to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, now Jesus makes a connection here. He, He hops from here to the explanation of marriage. Which I'm trying to find right now. I'll just read his words. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he, he, he connects this dawn of humankind commission with this explanation that, that marriage is a God ordained union, all right, of two people, into one flesh. And then he says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Alright? So, if you follow his allusions, if you follow his citation of the creation narrative, you see that Christ sees marriage as fundamental to the call of God, the creation mandate to fill and subdue, to To carry the image of God all throughout creation. All right? And we have this picture that we were crafted by our Creator God and King, and we were commissioned to create and to worship and reign. And that is fundamentally related to our being joined together. All right? Two made one. Marriage is a gift at the center of our identity. Now, if you can capture that vision, the vision of. I can't fulfill the creation mandate. I can't love and worship and honor and steward well by ignoring my spouse, right? I can't, I can't pretend like, like marriage is just some perk and and can be set aside in order to uh, to do the real work of God. If, if you can capture the vision that all that you've been called to, if you, if you are married, all that you've been called to is, is doable fundamentally in part because you have been joined together with another, if you can capture that vision for marriage, then anything short of lifelong, pure, hopeful, and beautiful celebration of your bride is tragic. Anything short of that is tragic. That's what Christ seems to be saying. This is why Jesus says, one, don't divorce your wife. Don't divorce your wife, too, because you and she are one flesh. And you should never rip apart what God has knit together. You should never rip apart what God has knit together. Okay. So, what I, I see Jesus doing here in this passage and in Matthew 19 is I see him doing what he always does, what we've seen him do now several times in the Sermon on the Mount. He's showing us that our desires are dead set against God's, right? We are dead set against God's vision. And we're headed in the polar opposite direction. Here's what I mean. They're seeking permission to divorce their wives on any grounds, right? They're saying, tell me how limited I am in the act of divorce, which is headed in that direction. Like, I am better off without her, right? And Christ is saying, facing this direction, Christ is saying, no, you shouldn't even be asking about divorce because you can't do what I've called you to do without her. See what I'm saying? It is is fundamentally against God's vision for marriage to be asking the the many ways I might be permitted to divorce my wife. wife. It's a totally different sermon. Okay, okay. so if marriage is so fundamental, if if marriage is so fundamental to our call, why is divorce ever permitted? Ever. Now what you need to know here is I'm going to make a decision that not every Christian uh, agrees with. Um, I do believe that the exception related to sexual infidelity, is truly an exception clause. And there is a group of people who don't agree with me. My granddaddy in the faith, John Piper, is not where I'm at. I think he's wrong. What you need to know, though, is that there are many godly people who are heading in a different direction with these passages. Um, So I'll set that there. And if you want to talk about resources, there are many. I would recommend uh, Andreas Kostenberger's book, God, marriage, and family, where he, in chapter 11, actually works through all the various positions and who's held them and why. Um, however, so I'm, I'm making a decision here, and that's going to sort of shift us in a direction, um, but I'll, I can talk you through why and how. So, if marriage is so fundamental to our call, why is divorce ever permitted? What is, what's the deal with this exception? What's the deal with this exception? All right, what is it about sexual infidelity that legitimizes divorce, right? Jesus permits, doesn't instruct, by the way, he doesn't prescribe, he permits, he allows divorce in occasions where there's been sexual infidelity. I I don't know why, and I want to know why, because it seems to, to me a key to understand the logic behind this passage. What is it about sexual infidelity that legitimizes divorce? I'm going to read to you from Paul, in the first book to the Corinthians. Well, listen to these words. Do you not know that he who is joined with a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Interesting. Interesting. Do you not know that he who is joined with a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So Paul forbids prostitution. On what grounds? It's like he's writing to young believers um, who really are just trying to figure out how uh, to follow Jesus and also trying to, to keep a pretty strong grip on all their favorite sins while doing so. That doesn't sound familiar at all. Um, <laughs> uh, anyways, Paul forbids prostitution on what grounds? He points to the same text that Jesus cites. It says, two shall become one flesh. All right, so what's going on here? I think what's happening here is that Paul and Jesus are seeing the physical act of sex in the same way. Namely, the physical act of sex isn't merely physical. It's a knitting together of two bodies as one flesh, which is a spiritual expression of lifelong commitment in marriage. All right? That last last clause is what we've forgotten about as a culture. A knitting together of two bodies as one flesh, which is a spiritual expression of lifelong commitment in marriage. Okay. However, when a husband who is already united to his bride knits himself to another, that physical embrace is an act of violence is an act of violence against the one flesh union which God established. You get this picture, if you, if you, if you dwell enough in these one flesh references, you get this picture that, that leaving a one flesh union to join your body with another is like, is like ripping the, the, the two bodies apart and, and seeming one to another. It is a violent and bloody act. That's the biblical picture of Adultery. In other words, in the case of sexual infidelity, that one flesh union is already torn to shreds. It's already torn to shreds. In many ways, joining yourself to another is kind of like a physical and spiritual declaration of divorce. It's a a choice to sever or to to, uh, desecrate the one flesh union. So... If we can follow the logic here, I think we're going to understand why Christ has permitted some things and doesn't permit other things, and why he said what he said about marriage and divorce. All right, so here's, here's how I'm seeing both Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. All right, one, Christ forbids divorce on illegitimate grounds, because you can't just draft some paperwork and pretend that the one flesh union doesn't exist. Here's what I mean. In every case, except sexual infidelity, you see that, that that despite sin, despite scarring, despite pain, the the one flesh union is still intact and and all of these guys drafting uh, certificates of divorce because their wife, I don't know, has, has offended them or because they keep arguing or because. Because uh, because they can't cook well or whatever, that that's like it's like pretending that the one flesh union is dissolved. It is not true to reality. The reality is you are knit together. There's nothing you can do about that. And when you write a, a certificate of divorce, all you're doing is pretending like the one flesh union no longer exists. See what I'm saying? Okay. It's a pretense. However, when you divorce your wife or when, wives, you divorce your husbands on illegitimate grounds, um, you're you're kind of setting them up. There's the the expectation that they will be remarried, right? Especially in Christ's day, it was almost inevitable, right? So, So handing someone a certificate of divorce and sending them out of your house, you're setting them up to be Married to another. Now, when she's married to another, and when she physically embraces another, that act is an act of violence against the still intact one flesh union. You see what I'm saying? Like you pretending by the certificate of divorce that the one flesh union never existed or that it's been severed. But it's true, and it's still there. And so when you send your wife away, and she joins to another, that becomes the same situation that Paul referenced. It's a severing, an act of violence against the one flesh union to join to another flesh, right? It's a a severing of what God has knit together. It's ripping apart what God has knit together, and it's your fault. Christ says, you make her an adulterer. When you send her away to be married to someone else, Because you are doing it on illegitimate grounds, you are making her an adulterer. This violent, bloody act of adultery is going to happen, and it's going to happen because you made it happen. All right. Now, the exception, if she's already ripped, or if he's already ripped apart that one flesh union through sexual infidelity, divorce is no longer a pretense. See what I'm saying? If the, if the one flesh union has been ripped apart, as Paul describes, joining your body to another, right? If, you're, if the one flesh union has already been ripped apart, divorce is no longer a pretense. The act of divorce is a written declaration that the one flesh union has itself been desecrated. So is everybody kind of following the logic of these passages? I know this is not going to be anybody's favorite sermon, but I think if we can draw near to this concept, we can really understand the one flesh union and how our actions can can harm the one flesh union, it will lead to rich marriages. All right, that's where we're headed. All right, so that's the logic. I think it's behind Matthew 5, and I think it's behind Matthew 19. Now I want to talk about the implications. All right, I I can see uh, seven implications. They're probably not exhaustive. Um, First implication, divorce on any grounds except sexual infidelity, it seems to be a pretense. Okay? Now, I am dealing only with Matthew 5. What you need to know is that Paul has a scenario in 1 Corinthians that suggests that if you're married to an unbeliever, and that unbeliever doesn't want to have anything to do with you, and you are abandoned, that unbeliever's adultery it also severs the one flesh union. And you seem to be free, uh, I believe, not, not just to be divorced, but I believe to be remarried. Uh, I'm, I'm stating that as an individual, not as the elders were at different places on some of these passages. But um, there, what, when, I, when I'm summarizing this passage, I'm summarizing Christ's addressing sexual infidelity. All right, so you need to know that there's a little bit more nuance. Again, I'm gonna have some resources available if you're interested in studying it. But what you need to know is that Handing someone a certificate of divorce, if the one flesh union is still intact, is, is just pretending. It's just pretending. And it's going to lead to adultery. All right. Two, if you follow Christ's biblical theology of marriage, if you can, if you can follow the dots on the treasure map and you can see that Christ references the, the very creation of humankind and Christ references Their mandate to be image bearers and to steward well and to and to and to fill the earth and to create and to and to love and honor and worship. That that beautiful pre-fall vision of the creation mandate is fundamentally related to marriage. Then attempting to find joy or pleasure or fulfillment or purpose without reference to the gift that is your spouse is godless. It's godless. If you find yourself annoyed because your spouse is getting in the way of that thing which you think will truly fulfill you, you have adapted a worldview that is foreign to the scriptures. We'll talk more about that later. Part of the work of following Christ is seeing where aspects of our worldview are, are foreign to the biblical model, foreign to the biblical picture, and this is one of them that I think we're going to have to deal with. Your wife, your husband is not in your way. That is not how it works. Okay, sorry. All right, third, th- it is not an accident that this is the last paragraph in what we dealt with last time on adultery and on Lust. And I think what's happening here is that we are being trained to understand that our lust, our adulterous imagination is training our hearts to rip apart what God has knit together. You find yourself imagining, you find yourself dwelling on someone that is not your spouse, you're just training your heart to yearn for the bloody violence of adultery that's ripping apart your one flesh union. It's murderous, and it's wicked. and We need to see our lust that way. We need to see our adulterous imagination that way, because that's how you shut it down, right? The biblical vision trains your heart to hate sin. Okay. Fourth, your sin generally, I'm not just talking about divorce, your sin has massive and unforeseen consequences. I mean, setting aside that the decision to grab that fruit and to eat it led to the the crisis of the universe, setting aside that that one action led to generations and, and centuries and millennia of pain and suffering, setting that dynamic aside, what we see here is that the decision to draft a certificate of divorce leads to cascade upon cascade of adultery. And that's just one model of many in the Scriptures, which is when you foster in your heart just a tiny affection for just this one sin, you may think it's harmless, but it's not. Our sin creates ripples of pain and suffering. That's how it works. That's why we need to eagerly pursue holiness. Because we don't even understand right now how much we're hurting the people around us. Part of the, I'm reading right now J.C. Ryle's Holiness. It's, it's brilliant. It's just worth a read. Take some time. And if you've read it before, loop back, glance at your favorite chapters. But um, he deals with the, the ongoing battle to be more and more like Christ and how it's not like more comfortable. In fact, as you walk, closer and closer to the biblical vision of discipleship you start to see how your heart craves sin and you start to see the sin that's always been there and you couldn't see it and as you're seeing that sin you start to look around and you realize you have spiritual eyes and you realize how much your sin is harming others so so don't see your sin as quiet and harmless it's not okay fifth how we think about marriage is damning evidence of how far we've fallen. I don't think we give enough credit to the pretty consistently biblical vision that human beings and how they think about stuff is a, is a clear demonstration of how far they have fallen into badness. Right? There is a, there is a narrative that I was pitched uh, from Barney on. Remember Barney, big purple elephant? I could probably be Barney. I'm probably right, right size. Um, <laughs> he's a dinosaur. Yeah, yeah, but he's a tall dinosaur. What? I said elephant? Where I grew up, there was an elephant named Barney. Oh, gosh. I'm sorry. All right, so from, 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 you know, youth on, we were taught you're basically a good person. People are good. Humanity is good. You know, we have bad days. We have bad day. we, there, are, there are bad people for sure because, I don't know Hitler. Okay, look, it's, that's a lie from the pit of hell. You look at God and all of his glory and holiness... You need to see you in your wretchedness. It's step one of the gospel. It's step one of the gospel. If you see him for who he is, you're going to find yourself as you are. And you are far from him. That fallenness leaks into every snip we, we issue at our wives. And every glance in the wrong direction. It is that wretchedness. Is soaked into the way you think about your marriage. Now, here's the hope. If you can see that that dynamic exists and you can train your heart to, to shift to the biblical model, the biblical vision of marriage, there is so much hope for you in Christ. Do so you, you wanna preach the gospel to your neighbors? You want them to be befuddled by your family? Have a biblical vision of marriage. Right? Okay, sorry. That's application. We're not even there yet. All right, six. Uh, This one's a hard thing to say. And it's hard to say because I know that some of you have fought for years. Um, Jesus permits. Jesus permits divorce. Yes, if your spouse has has been adulterous, you have grounds by Christ's permission to leave your spouse. Yes, but that permission is not prescription. So don't hear me saying that because this guy or this girl has basically already severed our one-flesh union, I'm just making it official, right? Don't hear me saying that that is the biblical prescription, the biblical model is Hosea. The biblical model is watching your spouse be terrible and welcoming her back. Because that's what Christ does for us. Every morning I wake up and I realize how oh, how much sin is in my heart and how often he welcomes me back in his arms. That's, that's I think, the call Now, sometimes that call is next to impossible. Sometimes you don't have a choice in the matter. But the biblical vision is Christ's mercy to welcome into his arms wretched sinners. And we can broadcast that mercy to the people who have hurt us the most. Christ died on a cross saving some of the people who were facilitating that death. Okay. All right, seven. Christ's vision for marriage is a key to hope, flourishing, holiness, and obedience. Here's what I mean. It seems as if Christ takes pretty seriously the role of your spouse in your fulfillment of all that he's asked you to be and do. It right? seems like Christ takes that pretty seriously. And if you too could take it pretty seriously and see that I can't be this guy, I can't do this thing, I can't fulfill this vision without her or without him, I think it's going to help. I think it's going to help all the stuff you try and do. Now, we've got to be frank here. Not all of our spouses are following Jesus. Not all of our spouses have any interest in following Jesus. That doesn't change the fact that Christ is calling you to see your spouse as a help and a gift. Okay, so much for implications. Let's figure out how to apply this to our lives First, for spouses, ask God to give you Christ's vision for marriage. Ask God to give you Christ's vision for marriage. Ask God to restore your marriage. And ask God to enrich the marriages at Redeemer Church. So, I mentioned I was reading this book by J.C. Ryle called Holiness. And I don't know, I just kind of expected, this is pretty dumb, I just kind of expected that, like, by chapter two, it'd be like, okay, here's what you do. Right? Like, I can't tell you how much time he spends saying, step one, run to Jesus in prayer. Step one, spend time with Jesus in prayer. Step two, pray for holiness. Step three, pray for a heart that wants to pray for holiness. Step three, and it's just all prayer enriched. It's just prayer. We can't, well, one, if you're a Christian, you know you can do nothing Outside of Christ, that dynamic doesn't change. And particularly, it doesn't change when you're trying to do hard things like have a vibrant marriage. So run to Jesus. Run to the throne of grace and ask for help. Not just for you and your marriage, but for our church. Pray for our church to have beautiful marriages. It's one of the easiest ways to start a conversation about the gospel. Just, uh, I had completely not even thought about this for years. We have a friend who was not, not a believer, um, but he was a libertarian. And, uh, and he believed strongly in the libertarian party. This is around the time when Ron Paul was campaigning for president. And uh, he decided um, to, uh, to campaign on Ron Paul's behalf. And he rose up through the ranks of Ron Paul's campaign. And, um, and, and towards the end of his time with Ron Paul, he was at all the dinners, Uh, the fundraising dinners. You know, like presidential candidates, they have little like meet and greets with all the wealthiest people in the world so they can have more money to advertise. And this was at one of these events. Um, My friend decided to start following Jesus when he watched Ron Paul consistently walk away from multi-millionaires when he heard that his wife was having an issue. He, He heard that his wife had a question or a concern and he would say, excuse me, and he would just he would just take care of her. Now, I don't know anything about Ron Paul's character. I don't know how, how much of a Christ-following model he could be. But what turned his affections to Christ was a model of Christ laying down his life on, be- on behalf of his bride. Ron Paul was actively walking away of millions of dollars of potential campaign funding to make sure his wife was okay. That's what we could be as a church. Right? You lay down your life for your spouse. You get that Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5 dynamic in your marriage, and, and your neighbors will notice, and your community will notice. Okay. Second, actively associate your lust with bloody violence. Actively associate your lust with bloody violence. You are scratching at the seams of God's precious gift and toying with massive consequences. When you are fueling your heart's desire for adultery, you are toying with bloody massacre and with consequences that ripple beyond your family. Well, We talked about that a lot last time, so we don't have to get too much into it. Third, treat your spouse as a fundamental ingredient in your faithfulness, not an obstacle to it. That's the big key uh, clause. Treat your spouse as a fundamental ingredient to you in your faithfulness, not an obstacle to it. If you find yourself rolling your eyes when your spouse needs something because you're trying to get to X, to do Y good thing, then you misunderstood. All right? She is not an obstacle. She is a help. He is not an obstacle. He is a help. You guys are, are, are working together towards faithfulness. So when you find your heart being frustrated with your spouse, repent. When you, find, when you find your heart, did I say spouse or wife? It goes both ways. Okay. Yeah, repent. It's not the biblical vision of marriage. Okay. Fourth. Work on your marriage. Work on your marriage until it's as vibrant and empowering as it was created to be. You are called to do great things for the Lord. You are called to brilliant displays of faithfulness. That's not step one. Right? If she or he is fundamental to walking out your call and you guys are not in a great place, then step one is working to repair, working to encourage working to sow seeds of vibrancy in your marriage, right? You're not going to offend us if you give us a text and say, I can't be at this service event or I can't be at this Bible study because I really need my wife and I to be okay. Amen, brother. Take as much time as you need. Okay. Fifth, this is for singles. Singles. I said a lot of things about marriage being fundamental to our identity. If you're single, that might feel painful or just weird. There are singles who desperately want to get married, and there are singles who are like, I can't even imagine living in the same room with somebody. Ugh, right? Like, wherever you are, you probably heard that and thought, Ooh, does that mean that I can't actually be a human? doing good things without a husband or wife? No. However, let me reiterate, marriage is fundamental to your identity. But all these half-hearted, argument-scarred, sin-riddled marriages around you are just a grim shadow of the pleasure and the love and the beauty and the glory of the marriage you were created for. If you're happy in your sealing list, praise God. If you believe you've been given the gift to walk that way, as Paul has, as Paul longed for more of the church to be, praise God. What you're doing is preparing for the wedding supper. You're preparing for the bridegroom. Okay. Sixth. This is for all Christians, single or married. Beware of popular biblical answers. Very few answers in the Sermon on the Mount are so seemingly biblical as give your wife a certificate of divorce. Look, Deuteronomy 24, see? And when you look at it, when you take a moment to look at it, it's absolutely ridiculous. You would be surprised how often that's the case and we don't know it because we're just okay with the popular biblical answers. I do not think you have permission as a Christ follower to take something for granted. If somebody says, well, sure, you have freedom to do this, because, and then they just randomly reference a theme in Scripture or a particular obscure verse in Scripture, you need to say, ah, interesting, and then you go find it. And you plead with the Lord to give you eyes to see. I fear that much of our cultural plateau in maturity, most, most of our evangelical Christian blemishes are a result of bad biblical answers. Don't be that guy. Go find out. Be a Berean. Go read the scriptures to see if it's so. All right, and then finally, I think it's our call as brothers and sisters to think carefully about Marriage. And to challenge one another to be better spouses. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be awkward. Probably going to offend some people. But you must feel the obligation to look at me if I snap at my wife and say, can I talk to you for a minute? You must feel the obligation if you look at me spending every night out... Doing good godly things like Bible studies and prayer meetings and and spending no time with my bride, you need to feel an obligation to say, Can I talk to you for a second? If we wear it and if we see our call to love one another and encourage one another to love and good works, then you're gonna have to have awkward conversations about your buddy's marriage. It's okay, it's gonna be okay. It is not the hardest thing you will do as a Christ follower but it's pretty hard sometimes. So, okay. Let's um, sing together and plead together for vibrant marriages. Amen.